Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Well, today um, we need to welcome Liquid Morristown. We need to welcome the rest of our three campuses, Liquid Mountainside, Nutley, and New Brunswick. Would you welcome them? We're so glad that you're here with us today. We're concluding our series, Firepower, 40 Days with the Holy Spirit, and today we are privileged to have with us a special guest, Dr. R.T. Kendall from Westminster Chapel in London. Would you welcome him? We're glad he's here. I'm going to invite him up in a minute. Just to give you a little background about Dr. Kendall, um, two things actually jumped out at me as we had dessert last night. One, you know he is an anointed uh, man of God because he is a lifelong New York Yankees fan, okay? That's number one. Uh, but he also is one of the most respected theologians of our generation. In fact, he has authored over 60 books, and the number one that I recommend to people is entitled Holy Fire, A Balanced Biblical Look at the Holy Spirit's Work in Our Lives. This is one of the best books I've ever read on the Holy Spirit, and I've encouraged it. I've given away to a lot of friends. We'll make copies available at the end of today's service. But Dr. Kendall has really had an esteemed career, uh, again, a Reformed theologian, but a tremendous openness to the things of the Spirit. And so he has respect in both conservative and charismatic circles alike. And he's come here all the way to New Jersey to share with us today a message entitled, The Midnight Cry. And I really think this is a wake-up call to our church and the church at large. It is based on Matthew 25, that's the scripture. So we printed that in your program today if you wanna open your Bible to Matthew 25 or flip there in your phone. But you're in for a treat because Dr. Kendall has been preaching for 60 years, okay? And, and composed over 4,000 original sermons. So you're about to hear from a master preacher. You put up with me every week, okay? I'm just a toddler. Would you give a big liquid welcome to Dr. R.T. Kendall? Thanks for coming, Dr. Kendall. Blessed to have you, sir. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tim. A warm introduction. Several things you said in your introduction, you got it right about the Yankee fan. But I, I come from Kentucky, and when I get to heaven, uh, does that mean you're from Kentucky? <laughs> well, now look, I wouldn't want anybody here to be intimidated by my being from Kentucky. Uh, I keep in mind, you can't help it that you were not born in Kentucky. Uh, I don't think I'm better than you. Probably am, I just don't think it. But, you, you know, we grew up just down the river from Cincinnati. Why I am not a Cincinnati Reds fan? When I get to heaven, the third or fourth question I'm going to ask is, how did I become a Yankee fan? And if you can let me name drop, at, uh, this afternoon I'm going to see Yogi Berra. Uh, he's given me permission. In fact, he's endorsed it. My next book that comes out in July... Uh, to coincide with my 80th birthday, it's called It Ain't Over Till It's Over. And Yogi has given a little blurb, and I'll see him today. But uh, all these uh, accolades, where'd you go, Tim? He, he dismisses me and runs. <laughs> but it reminds me of a friend of mine from Kentucky who was introduced to this large sales gathering 
as the man from Texas who had made $200 million in oil. And he was going to tell how he did it. Well, when he heard the introduction, he panicked. He thought, what am I going to do? Well, he said to himself, there's only one thing to do, and that's stand up and tell these people the truth. He said, folks, I have to tell you, uh, one or two discrepancies in the introduction. First, I'm not from Texas. I'm from Kentucky. And second, the money was not in oil. It was in bourbon. <laughs> Third, the figure was not $200 million. It was $200,000. And fourth, it wasn't me. It was my brother. <laughs> fifth, he didn't make it. He lost it. But I appreciate the kind things. I'm honored to be here. I uh, have been preaching for 60 years, been retired 12 or 13 years from London. Uh, and I now travel the world. But I have to tell you, honestly, I think this is the most unusual church that I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm putting it on Twitter today, and uh, we'll see how that goes. It's a privilege to be here. Well, now, let's get going. Would you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25? Matthew, chapter 25. Now, I'm using the NIV. The opening words are, at that time. The ESV says, then. What's the point? Well, following Matthew 24, where Jesus has described the last generation before his second coming... He then says, at that time, this makes it a prophetic parable to describe the condition of the church and what will happen just before the second coming. So at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, let me pause, the word midnight is a translation of three Greek words that mean in the middle of the night. It's not 12 o'clock midnight. In the middle of the night, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Well, may God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy 
and infallible word. A brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind present, that their perception of what I say will be received as you intend, and upon my tongue that I'll be cleansed, that I might be your transparent vessel to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. I pray that this will be a life-changing word, that we will never be the same again. And may this be a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Tim mentioned that I've preached uh, 4,000 sermons. I think that's quite true. But I, I should tell you that if you look through them all, you might find as many as 10 that dealt with prophecy, last things. Uh, I, I seldom go into that. Uh, that's partly because of a, a bit of a trauma I had when I first started preaching uh, 60 years ago. I was pastor of a church in Palmer, Tennessee. And my dad, I don't think he'd ever heard me preach, maybe once, had come to hear me. And I was really wanting to impress him. And so I, I brought out my very best. And I have to tell you that those were the days when I perfectly understood the book of Revelation. And I had it all down pat. So I had a sermon on the second coming, last days, man of sin, antichrist, tribulation, thousand year reign. It was brilliant. When I finished, my dad went quiet. And I thought, I wonder what he thought. A couple hours later, he said, son, let me give you some advice. In fact, it's advice that the man I named you after gave to young ministers, Dr. R.T. Williams. He would say to young ministers, you young men, stay away from the subject of prophecy. Let the old men do that. That way they won't be around to see their mistakes. <laughs> but now I'm old. So here goes. The parable of the ten virgins is one of my favorite. Uh, I've actually got a book on the parables of Jesus. And this is included. And I say more in it than I can say today. Uh, this parable, if I've got it right is not so much about the second coming as it is the awakening just before the second coming. Now, I don't know what your own eschatological bias may be, and it's possible that what I shall say you've not heard before. And I've not come to ram this down your throats. Just think about it. But if I've got it right, the next thing to happen on God's calendar is not the second coming, but rather an awakening just before the second coming that will wake up the church and ricochet around the world. And that is what I want to talk to you about briefly today. Now behind all that I will be saying is a conviction that I've held for quite a number of years. Uh, it's, it's this, in my opinion, there has been a silent divorce in the church, speaking generally,
between the Word and the Spirit. Now, when there's a divorce, sometimes the children stay with the mother, sometimes the children stay with the father. In this divorce, you have those that are on the Word side and those on the Spirit side. But what's the difference? Well, take those on the Word side. What is the message? Well, we must earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. Get back to Scripture, expository preaching, know your doctrine, rediscover Luther, Calvin, Great Reformation, justification by faith, Jonathan Edwards, sovereignty of God. And until we get back to this teaching, the honor of God's name will not be restored. What's wrong with that emphasis? Nothing. That's exactly right. It's what I believe. Take those on the spirit side. What is the message? Well, it's very simple. We need to get back to the book of Acts, where there were signs, wonders, miracles, gifts of the Spirit in operation. When they had a prayer meeting, the place was shaken. Get into Simon Peter's shadow, healed. Lied to the Holy Spirit, struck dead right on the spot. And until we have that kind of power, the honor of God's name will not be restored. What's wrong with that emphasis? Nothing. It's exactly right. But almost wherever I go in the world, there are exceptions, pockets here and there, but generally speaking, it's one or the other. Neither will learn from the other. They shout past each other, and the honor of God's name is not being restored. There is no fear of God in the land, no fear of God in the church. But all of that is going to change. It's going to change suddenly. And in my view, it is coming very, very soon. Well, now, who are the ten virgins? They represent the church. And I take the view that the ten virgins are converted people. Now, not all in the visible church have been saved. It's possible to be a member of a church and not be saved. It's possible to be baptized and not be saved. Uh, but I believe that this describes saved people because they're called virgins. Uh, that symbolizes the righteousness of Jesus Christ, His purity, is put to their credit. For the moment you trust the blood of Jesus for your salvation, and you transfer the trust that you had in your good works to what Jesus did for you on the cross, in that moment, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. And that is what we have for those ten virgins. But it says five were wise, five were foolish. What's the point here? Well, all Christians are required and invited to come into their inheritance. Some do, some don't. Those who do are called wise. Those who don't are called foolish. And where does the word and the spirit come into this parable? Well, the lamps. The wise had oil in their lamps. Said David, your word is a lamp unto my feet. A light, a light, a lamp. That's the word. The oil, Holy Spirit. When Samuel anointed David with the oil, the spirit of God came upon him. And so, the lamp, the oil, word and spirit. 
the foolish took no oil with them. Now, they had oil, and the proof of that is because it, later on it says, our lamps are going out. So there was oil, but they did not take enough. The wise took oil with them so that their lamps would always be burning. And yet, the irony is, both wise and foolish would be asleep. Well, now, what we have here is a cry that comes in the middle of the night. And what is it? It is an effectual awakening that will awaken the whole church. And the results will be felt around the world. For example, some of you remember exactly where you were. 10 o'clock in the morning, September 11th, 2001. Some of you, from where you are here, could see across the river in Manhattan the smoke rising from the Twin Towers after those two planes intentionally crashed into those towers. When I got back to Westminster Chapel the first Sunday after that, I preached a sermon, and I called it, The Day the World Changed. Some of my friends said, R.T., you, you, you shouldn't say that because you don't know for sure. I said, mark it, this has been the day the world changed, and now everybody agrees. Nothing has been quite the same. It was a moment that changed history. Now, this parable of Jesus is based upon an ancient Middle Eastern wedding. And his hearers would have understood it better than we. Uh, but let me explain. The wedding in those days uh, took, the place, took place in the house of the bridegroom. Uh, not in a church or cathedral or a synagogue or even justice of the peace. But in the house of the bridegroom. And sometimes the wedding would take the form of a seven-day celebration. At a specific time, the groom would come to get his bride from her house, then take her to his house. The bride would never know exactly when the bridegroom would arrive at her house. The tradition in those days, there would be young unmarried ladies who were friends of the bride, bridesmaids, who would accompany the bridal couple from the house of the bride to the house of the groom. Because the exact time of the bridegroom's arrival was uncertain, the bride was expected to be ready to leave at any moment. Often, strange as it may seem to us, the bridegroom would come in the middle of the night. But Jesus' hearers would have understood the context that he'd been talking about the last generation and the details of an ancient Middle Eastern wedding. Well, these unmarried ladies, called virgins in this parable, who were prudent, would bring along a flask of additional oil supply so their lamp would be burning in the middle of the night. This way their lamps would always be burning and lit. Now, a rule of all parables is you can't make them stand on all four legs evenly. Uh, in other words, we mustn't press every little detail, but get to the main point. 
And what was the main point Jesus was making? It was this, to be ready to enjoy the awakening when it comes just prior to the second coming because it was to be a happy event, a celebration. And so, a wedding is a happy event, the celebration. And we are called to enter into this celebration. Let me ask you a question. How would you like to be right in the middle of the greatest movement of the Holy Spirit since Pentecost? And it comes right here in New Jersey. And you're given power unlike anything you've ever experienced or dreamed of. Because the people that will be involved in this great celebration will not be the Billy Grahams of this world. How would you like to have authority? You could go right down the street here, or across into Manhattan, down Broadway, Times Square, give out a pamphlet, and have such authority that you're fearless. And people may shout at you, or they may not, but you're fearless, and you've got the word, and you're amazed to see them tremble before you. Or you see people that are sick, people in wheelchairs. How would you like to say to them, would you like to be healed? In Jesus' name, get up. Everyone thinks that only people with special gifts can do this. There's a lady in England, well-known in the Christian world. Her name is Jennifer Reese Larkham. Great ministry there. One day, because of a virus, she became crippled, couldn't walk. And for eight years, had a ministry in a wheelchair. I remember she once came to hear me preach, sat on the front row in a wheelchair in Bristol, England. Everybody prayed for her. One day, a young lady, around 20, been converted three weeks, went up to Jennifer Reese Larkham, said, can I pray for you? Sure. And instantly she was healed. She carried her wheelchair home and now speaks all over England standing up. And the point is, the people that are going to be involved in this will be faceless people, uh, not the big stars, not those that are high profile. And that means that all of us can be right in the middle of it. Well, now, Jesus is saying that this awakening is going to come in the middle of the night, metaphorically speaking. Uh, Imagine yourself in a deep sleep, 2 o'clock in the morning, when the last thing you are expecting is anything like this. And this is a description of the church today all over the world, speaking generally. Wherever I go, people say, well, what's the church like in the world? Whether Australia, South Africa, uh, America. And my answer is, the church is asleep, in a deep sleep. That is the best description I can think of to describe the church at the present time. Now, there are obvious things about sleep. For example, you don't know you were asleep until you wake up. How many times you lay down on your couch, I'm not going to sleep, I'm just going to rest. You wake up. 20 minutes later, yesterday on a plane flying in, I just put my head back. Hour later, I woke up. You don't know you were asleep until you wake up. And then, 
You do things in your sleep you would not do if you were awake. You dream. You wake up and think, I can't believe I had that dream. That's not me. But you do things when you're asleep you wouldn't do when awake. That is where the church is at the moment. Asleep. Wise and foolish. Asleep. And we do things we would not do. We allow things. We even approve of things that we wouldn't do if we were awake. And many of us are involved in things. You approve of things. You tolerate things. Nothing bothers you. There's no sense of outrage. No fear of God in the land. No fear of God in the church. This year I spent nearly six months in England. First time I was back to live for, for some 12 years. And I was shocked to perceive the level of godlessness worse than ever. What is going on in Britain and in America? What's going on right before our eyes? Uh, Same-sex marriage approved. We're all used to it. Nobody thinks much about it anymore. I could go on and on what is happening before our eyes. And, and when confronted, say, isn't this horrible? What's happening? And they say, oh yeah, it's really, it's really bad. And we want to go right back to sleep. We don't want to be bothered. Let me sleep on. The third thing about sleep, we don't like the sound of an alarm. I would like this little talk today to be a mini wake-up call. You may not like it, but I can tell you, if you're a foolish virgin, you will hate it. If you're a wise virgin, you welcome it. You want to know, what can I do that when this big wake-up call comes? And here's the big difference between today and when the big one comes. At the moment, the foolish can cross over and become wise. But when the big one comes, it's too late. The foolish stay foolish. Oh, they say to the wise, give us of your oil. Pray for us. Please help me. Pray for me. And the wise will say, I'd be glad to pray for you. I just have enough for myself. And if this message today can serve to be a mini wake-up call because the foolish virgins who took no oil, you see, the wise virgins, word and spirit, oil in the lamp, foolish virgins, not taking enough oil, don't think you're going to need it. And so you're not pursuing the spirit. And the foolish virgin is not walking in the light God gives you. What does that mean? Well, when God shows you something, you say, yes, Lord. He puts his finger on something in your life. You say, yes. Or do you say, oh, I, I, I don't know about that. For example, walking in gratitude. How many are thankful people? Or are you complaining all the time? Or walking in bitterness. Always pointing the finger. Walking in indifference. Nothing upsets you anymore. And not walking in total forgiveness. When God has told us, to let our enemy off the hook and pray for those 
who have not been a blessing to you or who maybe wanted to hurt you or to destroy you. You pray for them. He said, well, I can't do that. Well, that would be the foolish virgin who justifies their bitterness and looking for the loophole. Why? In my case, I don't have to do that. I could go on and on. But you see, a wake-up call from the Holy Spirit is, is one that makes you see you've been asleep and you welcome an opportunity because you want to get it right. Well, here's the thing. Those who are asleep, and according to this parable, that's going to be all of us. Uh, who am I to look at you and say, well, I'm awake. Sorry about you people. No, I don't doubt for one moment. I'm talking to myself. That there'll be things when this call comes, I will be horrified of that which I've tolerated or become just part of me and it doesn't bother me anymore. And see, the big problem is, as I've hinted at, no fear of God in the church. Let me ask you, who do you know that is afraid of the church? They don't, they're not afraid of us. They thumb their noses at us. Nothing happens. Mary, Queen of Scots, said she feared the prayers of John Knox more than an army of 10,000 men. There was a day when the church had such respect. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, it says that the rest did not even join them. There was such a fear. Fear of God came upon every soul. Many of you know the hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. I wonder, could we sing that? Everybody know it? Let's try it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Do you know the next verse? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Stop. Fear. You see, John Newton wrote that hymn in a day when it was an assumption that it was the fear of God that brought people to realize their condition. When the Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God to salvation, he gave the reason for the urgency of the gospel. Romans 1.18, because the wrath of God. If you were to say to people, why should people be Christians? What would your answer be? What do you suppose is the answer you'd give? Why a person should be a Christian? Are they going to be happier? Help your marriage? You're unhappy? You're depressed? Have you ever heard the idea that if there were no heaven, no hell, I'd still be a Christian? Ever hear that? Don't tell that to the Apostle Paul. He said, if you'd like to hear the Apostle Paul's testimony before he got saved... Would you like to hear what Paul would, could tell you Christianity's done for him? Listen to this. This is Paul 
uh, first of all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is Paul saying, here's what Christianity has done for me. He said, uh, uh, God has put us apostles at the end of the procession. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe. We are fools for Christ. We are weak. We are to this day going hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. Uh, we're persecuted. We've become the scum of the earth. <laughs> how, how many want to sign up? Say, oh, that's good. I want to be saved. You know, the first person that I baptized at Westminster Chapel, his name was Jay Michaels. His son is Al Michaels, the sportscaster. Jay Michaels was converted under my ministry, businessman from Los Angeles. And after being saved a couple of years, he said, you know, before I became a Christian, I was a happy man. <laughs> not complaining, not complaining. You see, the point I'm making is the perception of the gospel, the way it's preached today, is altogether different. Look at Christian television. What's the typical message? If you didn't know different, you would think Christianity is all about money. The point is, the world laughs at us. There's no fear of God in the land. None. But all of that is going to change. And the church awaken. And here's what will happen. First of all, the wise will be aware they've been awake. The foolish, it's too late for them. And they will come to the wise and say, pray for me, please, please. And there's nothing can be done. But as a result of the church being awakened, thousands, thousands, thousands converted. But then another little thing, and it's not so little. Millions of Muslims converted virtually overnight. That will be the effect. As a matter of fact, let me tell you. You've got Muslim friends. Some of them have had dreams of Jesus. They're afraid to talk about it. There are Muslims that have come to see in their dreams how real Jesus is, that he was the Son of God. He did die on the cross. But they're afraid to say anything. If you ask how will this great awakening take place when 9-11 was heard around the world in hours... How will this one happen? Well, I don't know for sure. I have a theory, what I'm going to suggest. I'm not saying this is the way it will be, but it could be. You know what I have here? Ever see one of these? This is called a smartphone. Did you know most young people under the age of 25 don't have a computer? They don't need it. Get your weather, news, emails, everything right here. Two or three years ago, in Tahir Square in Cairo, 50,000 Muslims showed up in one hour. How'd they know to do that? Did they see it on TV? Oh, no. One imam said, go to the square. 50,000 right there. You see, this little thing, uh, for, for example, I, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I don't have a big following, I think. 3,000, uh, if I'm honest, five or 600 people a day uh, look at it. I've got a picture with Pastor Tim and me. We'll go on Twitter today, uh, probably get 
700 as a result of that. Only had one go viral, only one. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, one went at 12,000 in one hour. Uh, it, it, but that's the sort of thing that could happen. All it would take for one imam who had the guts to say, I had a dream of Jesus. He's the son of God. He died on the cross. That's the sort of thing. You wonder how quickly it could happen. And God can do anything. As the psalmist put it, your people shall be willing in the day of your power. And then the next thing to happen will be the blindness on Israel lifted. And Jews by hundreds of thousands come to Christ. And then the second coming. Now that's the order eschatos, if I may put it that way, that I envisage. But here's the point. A great awakening is at hand. It's going to go around the world. And I just ask you, would you like it to come today? How, or would you say, well, I'd like an hour at least to think about it. <laughs> because I'm telling you, this is real. And I'll tell you the truth. I look for it every day. I, this morning in my hotel room, I thought, Lord, could it be today? Could it be today? It is coming when nobody's expecting anything like it. Well, now look, I, I've got to close, but here's the thing. When the midnight cry comes, it will be when the Word and the Spirit come together in great measure. When the cry comes, it will be when the Word and the Spirit, the simultaneous combination, will result in spontaneous combustion, the church awaken, ricochet to the world, and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. 22 years ago, I gave a talk in London, Wembley Conference Center. Another well-known prophetic man and I gave it. Graham Kendrick, great hymn writer, uh, uh, wrote a song for us called Getting the Word and the Spirit Coming Together. And the place was packed, and I gave on the last night an address that I thought, <laughs> naive of me, I thought they'd all be on their feet standing ovation. Instead, you could hear a pin drop. The people were not blessed, got me in more trouble than any talk I've given in 60 years of preaching. I'll give you the gist of it. For 13 years... Abraham sincerely believed that Ishmael was the promised son. In the same way, many charismatics today believe sincerely that the charismatic movement is the word that God will speak before the end, God's last word, charismatic movement. And one can understand why they would think it. Look how God is blessed. It goes right around the world. Third world Christianity. Pentecostals, Charismatics, cover the world. 600,000. So who can blame them for thinking it? But that talk I gave that night, I said that you have thought that the Charismatic movement was God's last word. No, it's Ishmael. Isaac is coming. I said to a charismatic leader a few days before the conference, I said, if you were to guess whether the charismatic movement is Ishmael or Isaac, which would you say? He said, Isaac. I said, what if I were to tell you it's Ishmael? 
You see, Abraham was given a promise of a son. Sarah was old, but he believed it. But after a few years, she didn't get pregnant. And so she suggested Abraham sleep with Hagar, which is not considered to be immoral in that culture. And Abraham thought, well, if it's a male child that is born, not what I was expecting, but lo and behold, Ishmael was born. God even gave him the name. And Abraham adjusted to it. He thought, this is it. And for 13 years, he sincerely believed that Ishmael was the promised son. And one day, God said, Abraham, wrong. Sarah will conceive. Isaac is coming. And as the promise concerning Isaac was a hundred times greater than the promise concerning Ishmael. So what is coming down the road is the greatest move of the Holy Spirit since Pentecost, greater than anything we've ever seen or dreamed of. Well, I thought everybody would like that. But all they could think of my charismatic friend said, you call us Ishmael. You call us Ishmael. And the funny thing is, one of them who resented it has since endorsed my view. And charismatic now leaders are saying to me, RT, we hope you are right. Because if what we have now is all there is, we're in pretty bad shape. We need something, something huge. And so I said, Isaac is coming. And it will be the greatest thing in the history of the church and turn the world upside down. Well, after I finished, somebody said to me, did you get that from Smith Wigglesworth? I said, no. Well, what do you mean? By the way, anybody here ever heard of Smith Wigglesworth? Let's see, a few hands, not many. He was an eccentric uh, plumber. He wasn't a preacher. Back in the early 20th century, healed people. And uh, Pentecostals know the name Smith Wigglesworth. Well, apparently, three months before he died in 1947, he gave a prophecy from his bed. You can Google today. Go home, Google Smith Wigglesworth, 1947 prophecy. And here is what he said. During the next few decades... There will be two distinct moves of the Holy Spirit across the church in Great Britain. He speaks in a British context. The first move will affect every church that is open to receive it and will be characterized by a restoration of the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. If that was given in 1947 and you consider this a valid prophecy, the charismatic movement was born virtually in 1960. Now, the traditional Pentecostal movement goes back to the beginning of the 20th century with Azusa Street. But the charismatic movement is a little different across the denominational lines. The second move of the Holy Spirit was result in people leaving historic churches and planting new churches in England that would be in the 70s and 80s. In the duration of these moves, the people who are involved will say, this is the great revival. But the Lord says, no, neither is this the great revival, but both our steps towards it. When the new church is on the wane, the new church phase, and in Britain, that's now. There will be evidence in the churches, something that has not been seen before, 
a coming together of those with an emphasis on the Word and those with an emphasis on the Spirit. This is the next thing to come. This is what I'm saying isn't far away. When the Word and the Spirit come together, there will be the biggest movement of the Holy Spirit that the nation and indeed the world has ever seen. It will mark the beginning of a revival that will eclipse anything that has been witnessed within these shores, even the Wesleyan and Welsh revivals of former years. The outpouring of God's Spirit will flow over from the UK to the mainland of Europe, and from there will begin a missionary move to the ends of the earth. What it is said, Smith Wigglesworth said, same thing I've just said, I call it Isaac. He calls it the Word and Spirit coming together. I'm telling you, it is at hand. Are you ready for it? Would you welcome it? Now, my time is up. Before I close, I've got to ask a question. Maybe uh, you don't need it. Maybe you don't think anybody here needs it, but here goes. Do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Do you? And if you were to stand before God, and you will, and he were to ask you, he might, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What is your answer? Don't shout out the answer if you know it, but I want you to ask yourself, suppose when you came in today, they passed out sheets of paper, and uh, you don't know why I'm going to tell you now. Go along with me. Imagine you've got a sheet of paper in front of you. I want you to write down in your mind your answer to the question. You're standing before God. He says, why should I let you in? And there's only one answer. Give the wrong answer. You have to go someplace else. You don't want to go there? What would you say? Think carefully. Where will you spend eternity? What's your hope of going to heaven? Well, now everybody's had time. Pass your answers to the end of the row. Ushers, pick them up and put them in those popcorn baskets. And now I've got several hundred sheets. Would you like to hear a typical answer? Here's one who says, well, I've, I've, I've tried to live a good life. I say to you, I believe you, but that won't save you. Here's another. Uh, well, I was brought up in a Christian home. Well done. That means you had a head start, but that won't save you. Uh, here's a, a third one. I was baptized. Good. If that's your hope, that won't save you. Here's another. I was baptized by a Baptist preacher. <laughs> you, my friend, are lost as a goose. Here's another. I've kept the Ten Commandments. Well, you're a liar, for one thing. Here's another. I live by the Sermon on the Mount. You're a bigger liar. What did you write down? The more space you needed on that sheet of paper, the worse shape you're in. Two words will do nicely. Jesus died. That's all. What did you write down? May I say to you lovingly, gently as I know how, if you wrote down in your mind anything other than trusting Jesus' death or the equivalent, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. But that can all change right now. I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. 
If you put the wrong answer, this is for you. I want you to pray this prayer. Don't need to say it out loud. Say it in your heart. God will look at you. You ready? Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. Tell him. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. That's it. Did you pray that prayer? Did you? Question, are you ashamed that you prayed that prayer? Why do you ask RT? Because Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. If you prayed that prayer and are not ashamed of it, in 30 seconds, not yet, in 28 seconds, I'm going to ask you to stand. You see, in front of all these people, yes. Ooh, that's scary. And the people will know I prayed it. I'm kind of embarrassed for them to know I prayed it. Look, in 15 seconds, I'm going to ask you to stand. Jesus said, confess me. I'm not going to ask you to join this church. I'm not going to ask you to make a speech. But if you're unashamed... Five, four, three, two, one. If you prayed that prayer, stand to your feet right this minute. Remain standing. Remain standing. Okay? Remain standing. Stop clapping, but remain standing. Now look. You that are standing. There are two categories of people right now. One. You've never done this before. You've never prayed a prayer like that before. You've never gone public with your faith before, being out in the open like this. If that's you, the Bible says that you've just been born again. And to you, I say, happy birthday. But there are others here. You were saved before today. But when you heard me put the gospel as I did, it rang true, and you said, I believe that. And you stood, not because you hadn't been saved before, but the clarification of the gospel is what you needed to hear. In which case you stood, you did the right thing. Whether it's first time or you've done it before. God bless you. Be seated. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.